Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today with their analysis, Chris Larimer in our Cedar Falls studio, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Hi, Chris. Hello, Ben. Jonathan Hasid joins us from our Ames studio, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, Ben. And uh, you, uh, as a listener, can join us as well. As you know, on our Politics Day, we love to have you on board with your questions, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, later in the program, some new polling uh, for Chris and Jonathan to chew over ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, also a disturbing rise in hate towards Arab Americans, Muslims, and Jews in this country. Donald Trump's uh, children testifying today in uh, New York. We heard that in our news. Uh, we'll lean on Jonathan as our China expert to have him um, outline how China views uh, the war in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, let's start, though, uh, with um, uh, this uh, aid from Congress. It was mentioned in the NPR News, the first major legislative action under new Speaker Mike Johnson, uh, House of Representatives, Republicans, uh, unveiling a standalone supplemental bill only for Israel. Um, now, yesterday, in the other chamber, U.S. senators from both parties voiced doubts about House Republicans' plan to provide just over $14 billion in aid to Israel by cutting Internal Revenue Service funding without without providing aid to Ukraine. Uh, President Biden threatening to veto the bill were it to pass. Um, President Biden's request is for a $106 billion package, uh, including aid for Israel and Ukraine, uh, funding to boost competition with China in the Indo-Pacific area, as well as security along the U.S. uh, border with Mexico. Before we uh, hear some analysis, uh, let's listen to the uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. He testified before the Senate uh, on this aid package that would send more than $105 billion to Israel and Ukraine. I think it's important to remind ourselves that what happens in Ukraine and what happens in Israel matters not to just Ukraine and Israel. It, rem- it matters to us. It affects our national security as well in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. Okay, but you're hearing uh, interruptions more than once in that hearing by protesters, um, many of them with their hands painted uh, blood red. Well, um, the FBI Director Christopher Wray testified yesterday as well at a Senate Homeland Security hearing between um, he, he said the war between Israel and Hamas has led to a spike in threats against the U.S. He warned that we are in a dangerous period as various terrorist groups look to leverage the conflict for their own causes. What we face and, and what we're doing to tackle them are always important, but it seems especially well-timed this year with the dangerous implications the very fluid situation in the Middle East has for our homeland security. The reality is that the terrorism threat has been elevated throughout 2023, but the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole nother level. 
Your questions about how this administration and Congress is handling the terrorist threat and these wars, the political implications, one 780 River-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Chris, to you first, uh, what do you make of this House bill, this standalone supplemental, with uh, only aid for Israel and also a cut to the IRS? Well, I think, you know, at face value, when you look at it, 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 it comes across as something that's, you know, in line with partisan politics. This is something that's, you know, you know, pushing back against what the Biden administration wants, even pushing against what Senate Republicans want, as you, as you mentioned in the discussion of the story. Um, and it's clear, you know, Speaker Johnson is looking to, um, you know, describe this funding for Israel in the context of you know, the overall budget for the United States. But, it, you know, it's, I think it's going to be a difficult, it's clear it's going to be a difficult sell within the Senate, and again, within, among, even among Senate Republicans, that, um, you know, to, to not include aid to Ukraine. I mean, we have to remember it was not that long ago that Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, and, and for the most part, Democrats and Republicans across both chambers of the U.S. Congress were united in support of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, Senator McConnell, hosted the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States just earlier this week um, and, again, pledged support for that. And there was, you know, kind of bipartisan agreement that Ukraine was important for, you know, the role of the United States in the in the international system. And so to see Speaker Johnson, you know, put, sort of decouple these two things with Ukraine and Israel, it does it does feel a little bit like this is partisan politics because then he's tying it to mm-hmm. cutting funding to the IRS, which, you know, people have talked about that would actually hurt in terms of lost revenue, right? We've, we've seen yeah. statements from the Committee for a Responsible Budget saying that that would actually cut or, or lead to a loss in revenue because there would be less oversight in terms of the tax system. And so, it you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a certainly a difficult sell in the U.S. Senate, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see how far it even gets within uh, the U.S. House itself. It's always been an interesting thing. You cut the IRS and you just have more people skipping out on taxes. They actually are um, should be paying to the government. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And this is something that, that, you know, House Republicans, we've heard push push against before when there was, you know, the Biden administration's proposal, you know, uh, a while ago about more funding for the IRS, you know, the hiring of 80,000 more employees for the IRS, you know, uh, Republicans have pushed back against that, even though that would actually provide more oversight for the yeah. tax system. And, and you would think those of us who do pay our taxes in the full amount would be grateful for catching those <laughs> who are going against the law, not paying their taxes. But, but be that as it may, uh, let's get back to this House Republican strategy. To, to you, Jonathan, here, um, th- th- this uh, standalone supplemental bill, um, what is the strategy, do you think, here, daring Democrats to vote against a, a standalone aid bill for Israel? Yeah, that's exactly right. So then, you know, the, the <clears throat> a Republican various campaign arms will be able to run uh, ads during election season saying, you know, Democrats voted against uh, aid to our allies in Israel. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, as Chris said, this is I mean, it's, it's not going to make it out, even out of the House, I don't think. But uh, one interesting I mean, you know, given given uh, it certainly won't make it out of Congress as a whole, given Mitch McConnell's uh, insistence that uh, the United States uh, continue to support uh, both Israel and Ukraine with substantial aid packages. What's interesting here, I think, is the once again, it's showing the uh, you know the, the split within the GOP between uh, more old school Republicans, people like uh, Minority Leader McConnell in the Senate, 
um, and, uh, you know, sort of more firebrand up-and-coming leaders, like perhaps uh, Speaker Johnson, the, the new House Speaker, um, who uh, seems a lot less friendly toward Ukraine aid than a lot of the sort of older, old-line members of the GOP are. So there's this real split, I think, between, if you like, the MAGA wing, the sort of Trumpist wing of the GOP, uh, which is uh, often sort of overtly pro-Russia, uh, and, you know, this long-term um, historical trend of the Republican Party, of course, being uh, <laughs> generally anti-Russian. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, that that's that's an interesting split that's happening that we, we won't see in the same way with Israel, um, which I think uh, is itself interesting. Yeah. I'd like to have you comment on the, the changing attitudes we're seeing in the, the, the weeks since this uh, uh, attack on Israel and Israel's response. Um, changing attitudes here as we see increasing casualties among Palestinian civilians uh, in the, the Gaza Strip. And um, I'm reading that some Muslim and Arab American groups threatening to withhold donations uh, toward uh, and votes towards President Biden in next year's election unless he takes immediate steps to secure a Gaza ceasefire. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby spoke at the White House in a, in a briefing yesterday where he said, now is not the time for a ceasefire. Uh, Kirby's remarks in response to a journalist we'll hear here raising that thousands of Palestinians including this, uh, many of this journalist's own family members have been killed by the Israeli bombardment of Gaza uh, since that initial attack by Hamas on October 7th. My condolences to you and your family. Are you in touch with some? Well, that, that are not still, as much as I can. Not as much as you'd like to be, yeah. But uh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, I'm very sorry to hear that. And so I can see this is obviously personal for you. I can tell you it's personal for the president, too. We don't want to see any more civilian casualties. So in terms of a ceasefire, um, our concern with that is that Hamas benefits to the, to the tune of being able to refit, renew themselves, plan and execute uh, additional attacks. Um, and as I said yesterday, right now is, is not the time for a general ceasefire. It is, however, the time to consider pauses in the fighting long enough so that folks like your relatives and family members can get this incredibly needed humanitarian assistance and perhaps a, a way to get out if they want to get out. So we're, we're supporting that, and we'll see what we can do. But again, my, my deepest condolences. NSC Council, um, NSC spokesman John Kirby there. Jonathan, tackle this. Help us understand better the Biden administration's um, challenge here, because we uh, do see many Palestinians, uh, children being killed in the Israeli response here, and uh, attitudes around the world, including here in in the U.S., uh, changing as a result. Yeah, there are at least two, two levels to think of this. One is uh, the domestic politics level, which I'll get to in a second, but the other is, the inter- of course, the international politics level. And here, uh, President Biden's options are relatively limited. Of course, the U.S. has a lot of influence in Israel, but ultimately Israel is a sovereign country. And Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the prime minister, at least for now, uh, has shown that he's going to do what he's going to do regardless of what American spe- uh, statespersons uh, tell him. And so in that sense, Biden can urge Israeli restraint. And, you know, there are some carrots and sticks that the U.S. has with Israel, but ultimately it's up to the Israeli government uh, to determine the, the course and pace of their operation. Um, and, you know, if I mean, if 
if they're going to indiscri- if the Israeli government is going to indiscriminately bomb civilian areas, uh, which they, I, I imagine they will do, there's just not much that the Biden administration can do to stop them. So that's that's one of the international elements that on the Jonathan, I'm going to very- jump in. We have to take a break. We'll let you pick up with oh. the domestic implications. Your thoughts there, if we could. Sorry about the interruption. When we come back that's after right. a short break, Jonathan Hasid with us in our Ames studio. Uh, political scientist at uh, Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of UNI um, uh, in uh, our Cedar Falls studio. Join us with with your questions about how this administration, Congress, is handling these wars, uh, terrorism, the rise in terrorism threats, and the political implications. 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Our political analysts, political scientists this hour, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, Jonathan, before we went to break, uh, you were talking about the position that the Biden administration is in here, both internationally and domestically. I think you were going to shift to your thoughts on the domestic implications of the Israel-Hamas war. Yeah. So, um, you know, Biden has to walk a tightrope here between uh, various supporters uh, on the left and and I guess sometimes on the right. You know, a a majority of support for American uh, support for Israel comes from the evangelical Christian community who find, uh, you know, that Israel is linked to various messianic beliefs. Uh, And on the left, interestingly, uh, where most American Jews are, um, you know, support for Israel has dropped considerably over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, in large part because of Israeli policies and, and controversial figures like Benjamin Netanyahu. And so Trump has to, I mean, excuse me, Biden has to navigate between, um, you know, a, they, a sort of uh, secular, relatively secular Jewish left-leaning population that may is a key part of support in states like New York or Florida, Massachusetts, California, and others that have large Jewish populations. And, um, you know, the, the, the other side, right? So there's also Arab Americans who in the past have supported uh, Joe Biden's campaign, in particular in, in, in uh, uh, Michigan, where there's a large uh, Arab American population. And uh, as, as you said earlier, Ben, there's some indication that a lot of Arab Americans are very angry with the Biden administration mm-hmm. for not pushing Israel um, harder to, to exercise restraint. And so, you know, Biden is somehow going to have to walk this tightrope of satisfying um, you know, the American Jews who support the Democratic Party, of satisfying the Arab Americans who at least uh, in the past have supported the Democratic Party, and also simultaneously those evangelical Christians who are big Israel supporters, who are not necessarily, you know, big Biden supporters, but at least some of whom will be. <clears throat> and uh, it's, it's you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult for Biden to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, an email from Terry in the Quad City who was listening to our earlier conversation about the uh, uh, standalone bill of funding Israel, um, defunding um, 
the IRS to pay for it. Uh, how can anything get done if Johnson, you mean Speaker Johnson, of course, we have to get used to saying Speaker Johnson, if uh, he goes on, uh, if he confounds the process by wanting to defund the IRS. Nobody but a hypocrite, uh, writes Terry, would claim to be concerned about the deficit, would want to diminish the IRS. Uh, this has nothing to do with aid to Israel or Ukraine, he writes. How does this end? The Senate will not pass this and we'll have lost three weeks waiting for a, we've lost three weeks waiting for a speaker already. Terry in the Quad Cities, thanks for that comment. Join us, one 780 9100 or email to river at Um Let's listen to FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, once again, this on a, a different uh, uh, note here. Um, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was with him. He confirmed a rise in hate towards Arab Americans, Muslims, and Jews. Uh, the FBI Director Christopher Ray acknowledging that Jewish communities have been ut- uniquely uh, targeted. Uh, let's listen to that. This is a threat that is uh, reaching, in some ways, sort of historic levels, um, in part because, uh, as you know all too well, the Jewish community uh, is targeted by terrorists really across the spectrum, homegrown violent extremists, foreign terrorist organizations, both Sunni and Shia, domestic violent extremists. uh, And in fact, our statistics would indicate that for a group that represents only about 2.4% of the American public, they account for something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes. FBI Director Christopher Wray this week. Wow, um, Chris, to you on this, I guess I've never heard it expressed so st- starkly in statistics. 2.4% of our population and uh, something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes. Uh, your thoughts here, here, Chris, on what you see going on here in the rise of hate in this country directed at certain groups, and we know where rhetoric is, um, uh, there is a possible domestic violence as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly just a very, very delicate situation, and, and, and Jonathan hit on that, talking about the, the delicate balance facing the Biden administration on, on the, the domestic front with, with what's going on in Israel right now. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's one of those things, it just feels like there are a lot of issues kind of really sort of piling on top of one another that, that need addressing, right? And that's what makes, as you know, the, call, the Terry from the Quad Cities, the caller, you know, mentioned about the, the three weeks that were lost in the race for the speakership, why that was so consequential. There are all these issues that, that really need addressing policies that need to be put in place, regulations that need to be discussed. But we lost three weeks with that, the, the race for the speaker position or to fill the speaker position. And now we're at November 1st, we're 16 days away from when the next, uh, or when the continuing resolution is set to expire. And the discussion now, the real policy narrative right now is, is centered on Israel. And, 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 and that's obvious and for obvious reasons, but then, you know, all of these other issues kind of get pushed to the pushed to the back burner a little bit, including, you know, discussion about aid to Ukraine and how that fits in with, mm-hmm. you know, the United States role in the, in the political system, talking more about, as you said, you know, hate speech or even addressing polarization, how polarized discussion of issues is affecting um, policy outcomes or our attempt to get at certain policy outcomes. And so, I, you know, it, it's just a, an extremely difficult time right now, but what we see going on in the U.S. Congress is really kind of these these ongoing partisan battles between the Biden administration and, and Republicans, and particularly House Republicans. 
Mm-hmm. Um, here's another email from one of our listeners, Michelle. Uh, I hope I'm getting your name correct. Uh, why would we supply aid for weapons to Israel when they clearly have what they need to defeat Hamas and protect themselves? Would it not be more f- effective to aid Israel by funding humanitarian aid to Gaza civilians and Egypt to prevent war crimes by Netanyahu? This is not the same as Ukraine, says Michelle. We owe Ukraine who we convinced uh, to give up their nuclear power to Russia and therefore is without protection. Jonathan, a comment perhaps on that email? Uh, sure. You know, the U.S. does give Israel an enormous amount of aid. Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, and Israel, you know, is quite a wealthy country now. Um, and so in that respect, I think there's increasing distaste for giving Israel lots and lots of money, especially on the left. Um, uh, but, you know, if you don't... I mean, it would send a, it would send a, a troubling symbolic message if the Biden administration didn't send money to Israel now, given that Israel has been a, the linchpin American ally in the Middle East for for decades. Uh, and so it may well be that, you know, that the U.S. government over time should cut off funding for Israeli weapons. I mean, the Israelis can probably fund it themselves, but, you know, now would be in a politically impossible time to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to draw on your China expertise um, uh, in this discussion about the Middle East and the new war. China, of course, a key economic partner for many Middle East countries, a uh, buyer of both uh, Saudi and Iranian oil. Uh, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran are our foes. Um, uh, as our China expert, what's your take on how China views the Israel-Hamas war? China is, is being very careful. China is mostly trying to stay out of this right now for fear of angering anybody. So China is making all kinds of, a bit like the, the Ukraine war, actually, except that in that case, China's stance is more clear. Uh, China is making all kinds of anodyne statements about, you know, deploring the violence and wishing for peace, which I'm sure everyone can agree with. Um, but China hasn't done any really much of substance. And, you know, China now ha- does have quite a bit of influence in the Middle East. Uh, the, the Arab world's biggest trading partner now is China, of course, mostly selling oil. Uh, and the Chinese, in turn, send a lot of exports uh, to, to the Middle East. But the Chinese haven't yet developed the kind of decades-long relationships uh, with many of the key players that the US, successive U.S. administrations have had. And although China does have increasingly close ties with countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran... Um, they've also China has also been reluctant to dive really headfirst into the region. Uh, you know, mostly China likes to confine its uh, geopolitical pressure to its own backyard. Uh, and the sort of the, sort of the farther things are away from China, the less the Chinese government is inclined to really jump in, at least for now. Mm-hmm. They have aspirations, though, at some point in the future to be a, a major player in the Middle East. Certainly they do. Um, China is very much looking forward to and trying to precipitate a multipolar world where the U.S. is not the only uh, you know, power that matters around the globe. China is trying to set up its own kind of international balancing act against the United States. Some of that balancing will involve going through the Middle East uh, with particular countries like Saudi Arabia, which in the past were very pro-American, but now under Mohammed bin Salman have been sort of moving away from ties with the United States. And so certainly China has a long game here in trying to get influence in the Middle East. Uh, but for now, the Chinese are treading very gingerly and um, just sort of letting letting the U.S. Uh, take the lead on this, at mm-hmm. least for now. David in Cedar Rapids uh, writes us an email with a question for you, Jonathan, as our China expert. Uh, he writes, is the Middle East a distraction from China, which has been described as the only power capable and intent on remaking the global order? David in Cedar Rapids. 
Uh, it's you know it depends on what you consider a distraction, I suppose. Uh, certainly for the people in Israel and Palestine, of course, it's not a distraction. It's very much uh, top front of mind there. But yeah, for the United States, uh, arguably, uh, our interest, the U.S. interests in the Middle East have declined over the years because of energy transition. The U.S. is now the lar- world's largest pumper of oil, for example, a largest oil producer. And you know, of course, there's also energy transition toward electric cars and stuff. And so over time, the U.S. has been sort of slowly pulling back from the Middle East. And starting in the Obama administration, there was a so-called pivot to Asia, uh, where, where Obama uh, tried to p- push more emphasis on U.S.-Asia policy. And I do think that in the long run, yes, the U.S. strategic comp- competition with China is is and will continue to be a major deal in world politics. Um, and, you know, the Middle East will be one of those battlegrounds. But in, in general, as I said before, the Chinese are, are in general more interested with the goings on in their own backyard. So dealing with the Philippines, dealing with Taiwan, dealing with Japan and, and uh, Vietnam and other countries in the region. Let me, while we're still on the topic of the Middle East, uh, Chris, let me throw this out, this new in uh, Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll showing that a majority of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers say former President Trump is the candidate they believe would do the best job of handling the Israel-Hamas uh, war, um, uh, they, followed by uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Um, Trump at 52 percent of likely GOP caucus uh, goers, uh, Nikki Haley at 22 percent farther back. A little bit later in the program, we'll talk about their overall standing. Um, Trump told Iowans in Cedar Rapids, uh, in uh, October last month, <laughs> uh, that the wars in Israel and Ukraine, in his words, would not have happened under his watch. Uh, quote, we are closer to World War III than we've ever been, and I'm the only one who will that will prevent World War III. Uh, Chris, uh, comment on these claims and, and Republicans' faith in, in Donald Trump's foreign policy, which is much different than the Biden administration's approach. Yeah, I think without getting into, you know, some of the other parts of that poll, because I think some of that's tied to what we're seeing here, where you have, as you said, you know, Donald Trump at 52 percent, Nikki Haley at at 22 percent in second, and then Governor DeSantis further down at uh, at nine percent, I think, on on this issue. I think some of that reflects what, you know, um, maybe Republican caucus goers you know, think of the former president in terms of his leadership capability. Certainly, it's probably for caucus goers and, and poll respondents. It's easier to identify a former president, a former ambassador to any issue dealing with, with any uh, for U.S. foreign policy. And so I think that's part of it. But I think also there could be some um, conflating there of in, in terms of what they think of the former president, you know, his his popularity within the poll, as we'll talk about later, and then, you know, his ability to deal with, with any number of issues, really. And, and as a stark contrast to to the Biden administration, because there are some other interesting things in the poll talking about, you know, his legal troubles and, and what right. how that affects his future and, and, and other things. Yeah, so. we want to talk about that a little bit later, um, that that latest polling. Uh, Jonathan, to you on the, the weekend news that the former Vice President Mike Pence ended his presidential campaign. Um, he told a crowd of supporters in Las Vegas, it's become clear to me that this is not my time. Um, Of course, uh, comedians, uh, among others, having a field day with this. Jimmy Fallon's quote on this. uh, uh, Over the weekend, Mike Pence officially suspended his 2024 presidential campaign, right? Which raises an interesting question. Can you stop something that never started? Uh, Jonathan, (laughs) is that the analysis as well? It just never started. Yeah. It was the time just wasn't right for Pence. You know, I mean, 
I, I don't know if the time will ever be right for Pence to be to be president. You know, the, the problem, of course, is that um, the the MAGA wing of the Republican Party thinks that Pence ultimately betrayed Donald Trump by not participating in Trump's coup attempt and installing him as president. And that's, you know, a fatal flaw from their perspective. Right. That that's that's something that that, you know, Mike Pence. To quote Donald Trump, didn't have the courage, right, to 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 help Trump's coup attempt, which of course for them is is disqualifying. Uh, by contrast, right, he was also he's not going to appeal to a lot of people on the left either. He's well known as for his religious positions, for his um, often uh, I don't I don't know necessarily want to use the word sycophantic support for Trump, but let's say his enthusiastic support for Trump during the presidency. Um, and so, I, where is the lane that Mike Pence is going to run in? You know, the, it, 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 it doesn't, if it ever existed, it certainly doesn't exist now. Mm-hmm. It's also worth pointing out that vice presidents historically haven't, especially in recent decades, haven't had like a great run toward the presidency. Like most, most vice presidents who've uh, tried to get the presidency, uh, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century have failed. Mm-hmm. We have a couple minutes before we, we go to break. Uh, Donald Trump's children uh, starting to testify today in New York. Um, Donald Trump Jr. scheduled to take the stand in his father's civil fraud trial. Uh, Eric Trump set for tomorrow. Ivanka uh, and the former president expected to appear next week. Um, The sons are co-defendants. They'll probably face questions, according to reports, about alleged efforts to inflate the value of Trump's organization's uh, properties. Uh, Ivanka to testify as a witness. Chris, how significant will this testimony be, do you imagine? Well, I mean, this gets, as you said, this is a civil trial. This gets at the, you know, the the fine that was handed out for misrepresenting the, the values of the Trump organization. I think it's going to be interesting to hear how that testimony goes, because as I understand it, with this civil trial, you know, if, if they're asked to, to testify, they, they really can't, uh, you know, plead the fifth and, and say that they don't want to incriminate themselves. And so um, I think the judge is going to be looking to see, you know, how credible their positions are, or their defenses of, um, you know, any sort of statements they had dealing with the, the valuation of the Trump assets. Um, I think, as I understand it, Eric Trump was was maybe a little bit more involved than Donald Trump Jr. on some of this. But, um, you know, if, if it comes down to a judge really trying to judge the validity of their responses, I think it, it could be, it potentially could be very consequential in terms of how that, if that fine is, is handed down. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, a quick comment before we go to break on the civil fraud trial going on in New York with these uh, key uh, testimony. Sure. Well, it won't, I mean, I don't think it'll move the needle much politically. Trump, of course, has 91 indictments. Those haven't really moved the needle. And so, you know, he's already been found liable for sexual assault on Eugene Carroll. So I don't think you know, a finding of substantial fraud by this New York judge is likely to shake his supporters' uh, political support in him and faith in him. That said, it would be a kind of a huge symbolic blow. One of the things the New York Attorney General's office is, is at asking for in this trial is shutting down the Trump Organization in New York, which would be a massive blow to Trump's ego, at least. Mm-hmm. You hear the music. We have to go to break. We'll be back with Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, our two political scientists on board. We'll talk about the latest Iowa poll. Uh, Donald Trump still very much in the lead. 1-866-780-9100. River to River at iowapublicradio.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer with this Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa, our two political scientists. Join us, River to River, at iowapublicradio.org, our email, or call 800-1866-780-9100. Let's dig into some uh, polls that have come out in the recent uh, days. we were on the topic of legal challenges to the president, and he has a myriad of those. But almost two-thirds of likely Republican caucus goers say Donald Trump can defeat President Biden despite his ongoing legal challenges. This is a new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll asking likely Republican caucus goers for their view on the election effects of Trump's court battles. Um, Of course, he faces all kinds. Um, We talked about the civil fraud trial, but he also has charges related to the January 6th attack, uh, possible election interference in the state of Georgia, those uh, classified documents in in Florida, um, and uh, hush money payments in New York. Uh, Two-thirds, nearly two-thirds of respondents, 65 percent, say Trump can win an election against Joe Biden regardless of his legal challenges. Another 32 percent say his legal challenges will make it nearly impossible for him to win an election against uh, Joe Biden. Chris, where do you come down on this question? Well, I think, I mean, it gets back to what Jonathan said before the break that, you know, with all these, the 91 plus 91 indictments that are out there, as he said, you know, the, we haven't really seen the needle move a whole lot. And, and that's what we've seen in poll after poll overall in terms of the support for the former president is that politically, you know, among likely Republican caucus goers, likely Republican voters in other states is that we haven't seen a lot of movement. So to see that number in the Iowa poll, I think, reflects what we've seen nationally in terms of his his poll numbers not really moving a whole lot in reaction to to all these um these indictments um i think what if you you start to get into the poll and i don't know how much you want to get into all of it right now but um you do see some 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 contrast within the poll even on that even on that question about Mm -hmm. his legal troubles and and whether or not that hurts his chances you know if you look at uh, voters in that poll are likely caucus scores, excuse me, that express support for DeSantis as their first choice. 53% of those voters said that Trump could still win even with those legal battles. But if you shift over to supporters of Nikki Haley or those who said Nikki Haley would be their first choice, 63% it would be said it would be impossible for Trump to win. So we're seeing a, what you start to see within the poll is very much a, a sharp break between kind of Donald Trump Governor DeSantis and then Nikki Haley on the other side, and even between DeSantis and uh, Nikki Haley supporters overall. Having said that, you know, you look at the overall numbers, uh, you know, the, the storyline that comes out of the po- this particular poll is that it, it reflects kind of what we saw back in August when the last poll came out. You know, Donald Trump is up by 27 points. His supporters are, you know, decided on who they want to support. You know, over 60 percent of his supporters say their mind is made up. That's very different than what you see with Governor DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley, where those numbers are down around 30 and 26 percent. Mm-hmm. His supporters, Trump supporters, are more enthusiastic. You know, 47 percent say they're extremely enthusiastic. That compares to 25 percent and 19 percent for DeSantis and Haley. So the level of decisiveness, the level of enthusiasm is still there for Trump. I think the other storyline coming out of this poll, though, is obviously that support for Nikki Haley went up by 10 points. And it went up, and it and it, there's a sharp contrast, as I said, now between DeSantis supporters and supporters of 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 Nikki Haley, and so that's one of the things to watch. I, you know, 
with this poll, and we saw this in the last poll, I think one of the, the other things to try to fit with everything that's going on is that even though Trump supporters say their mind is made up, they're extremely enthusiastic, overall, 54% of respondents said that they're still open. Um, mm. And that 73% of respondents said they're still considering up to three different candidates uh, for the caucuses. So there, there's the potential for movement before we get to January, but so far at the top, we, we haven't seen a lot of movement, and those supporters have seemed to still be really dug in. Yeah, former President Trump in this latest poll leading his nearest Republican rivals by nearly 30 points here in Iowa. Uh, two-thirds of GOP caucus goers, likely caucus goers, uh, dismissing the severity of those legal challenges, as we brought up here. Um, and importantly, uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley moving up to tie for second place with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And uh, before I have your comment on these latest polls, Jonathan, I'd like to play a little bit of the former president uh, in Sioux City predicting he'll easily win the Iowa caucuses. Uh, he made his comments during a rally in Sioux City on Sunday. I was very disrespectful to Iowa. I'd like to apologize because I go around saying, of course, we're going to win Iowa. And my people said, you cannot assume that to this extent. Well, we are. I think we're up by 47 points or something. So we so we should. But forgetting that. But Ben, they said, sir, it would be nice if you didn't say that because you can't just assume, you know, people may get upset. I said, wait a minute. I got Iowa. And the farm states, Nebraska, Wisconsin, and others. I got, I got farmers $28 billion from China. I said, there's no way that I was voting against Trump. Okay. The former president in Sioux City on Sunday. Jonathan, uh, what do you see of interest uh, in this, these latest polls? Well, I think Trump is right. I think Trump Trump will be the Iowa nominee unless you know he's in he's in prison or dead. Um, and uh, that <clears throat> I think I, I think his lead is unsurmountable at this point, especially because um, if if DeSantis drops out, so DeSantis of course has really lost momentum nationally and is going all in on Iowa. Um, but if DeSantis ultimately withdraws from the campaign, as Chris pointed out, a lot of his voters will go to Trump. A lot of his voters will not. Their second place choice is Trump, and so. You'd think that having some people exit the race would open up the field, but it doesn't seem like it'll actually make that much of a difference. Um, most of the, you know, most of the field is in single digits. Uh, Chris Christie was something like four percent. Um, you know, Mike Pence, of course, has already dropped out; was below two percent. And so these people, you know, the sort of minor, more minor players here dropping out of the race uh, is to be expected. But it's not. There's just not a lot of votes there that that. Uh, opponents of Trump will pick up. By contrast, if Ron DeSantis drops out of the race, it may actually help Trump. Mm. Uh, and so unless all of the anti-Trump uh, groups in Iowa sort of coalesce around someone like Nikki Haley, um, he, he, Trump is, is going to be the nominee. And even if that happens, I, I suspect that he still has enough support that even in a one-to-one head-to-head match between Trump and Haley in Iowa, I suspect that, that Trump would be the nominee anyway, even mm. if there were no other candidates in the race. The final 10 minutes with our two political scientists on this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. Um, it was, uh, neither of you gentlemen were on the program last week, but it was at the tail end of uh, last week's show that Mike Johnson, elected Speaker of the U.S. House, uh, someone most of us have never heard of, is now the most powerful Republican in Washington, 
um, we're hearing a, a mild-mannered conservative Republican from Louisiana. Um, this uh, His elevation to the speakership followed weeks of chaos, uh, known for placing his, his evangelical Christianity at the center of his political life and policy positions, uh, the son of a firefighter, the first in his family to attend college with deep roots in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, each of your thoughts, please, on Mike Johnson and how he will lead the Republican House Caucus, remembering that very thin Republican majority. Chris. All right. Well, before we get to that, just one quick comment on that clip that you played from from Donald Trump. Sure. Um, one thing to one thing to think about there, right? As we've talked about before, the Iowa caucuses are you know always all about expectations. So I think what the people who are pushing back against Trump to not say that he would win Iowa are, are probably thinking about the history of the Iowa caucuses. In that, if you build up expectations that you are going to win big, and for whatever reason, if he would not win by mm. 20, 30 points. Would that hurt him going forward in other states? It, it may not because his supporters are so dug in, but that's something to think about is that expectations game. And is he setting himself up to to not do as well in terms of what people's expectations are come caucus night? So Interesting. Just leave that out there. Uh, but, the you know, with with Mike Johnson, I think with Speaker Johnson, what we've what I've heard so far and, and, and read is that, as you said, he's, he's a very socially conservative uh, Republican. Um, you know, he's it's in previous votes. It, it seems to be that he is also very fiscally conservative, um, that he's he's one of these uh, House Republicans that's very much interested in balancing the budget. But as we've talked about before on the show, you can't do that on discretionary spending. And that that seems to be where some House Republicans are, are trying to do it. And so but that he seems to be in line with House Republicans who are in favor of that approach to the budget. Um, you know, I, 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 we, you probably talked last week, you know, about that he was on the legal team, yep. uh, for, for Donald Trump, right? Yeah. For the 2020 election. And so, um, I, everything suggests that this is someone who is, you know, pretty far to the right in terms of his ideology and his, his voting record. And that, you know, that, and as most people have said already, that he's he's similar to you know a, a Jim Jordan, um, maybe a different personality, but you you end up with kind of the same voting record. So it may be a different style of leadership, but he doesn't have a lot of experience leading a, a large caucus, right? He doesn't have he didn't he doesn't have a history as a chair of a committee, and so I think this is going to be an extremely difficult position for Speaker Johnson, given everything that we've talked about today, given everything that's going on. How does he come to bring his caucus together in 16 days to figure out what to do with this continuing resolution? How do you yeah. how do you get those conversations going with everything else going on? I think he's in an incredibly difficult position yeah, right to now. avoid a government shutdown here in, in a, possibly right. in a few days. And and to emphasize what you just said there, Chris, and to hand off to Jonathan, he played a leading role in the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 mm-hmm. presidential election. Also, he's expressed in the past skepticism about some of the definitions of the separation of church and state. Jonathan, thoughts? Uh, that, you know, places him well outside the American political mainstream, but of course, uh, you know, right in the heart of the Republican Party these days. I mean, as Chris said, you know, he's going to have a real challenge. I think I think the big problem for him is that he really isn't governing a single political party. He's governing at least two political parties. There's a MAGA party, and then there's like a kind of a rump Republican wing. And this was this produced all the tensions that ultimately led to um, Speaker McCarthy getting canned, and then, of course, um, the, the the drama afterwards. 
those issues haven't gone away, right? Just because Mike John- Mike Johnson seems to have been selected, and I'll be honest, I'd never heard of the man before he was picked as speaker, uh-huh. but he seems to have been selected for being for for being genial, you know, for for not making enemies, for being someone who was well liked in the in the caucus in the Republican caucus without necessarily being well known. He certainly didn't have a lot of national profile, um, but this also means that he hasn't been vetted, and there's going to be stuff that's coming out that you know about his background that that may. Uh, proved distasteful to a lot of voters. I mean, uh, there was an interesting story today that that I think was in Political. Political noted that he doesn't have a bank account, um, which is kind of astonishing. Like, how does the how does the Speaker of the House not not have a bank account? Um, and it, it opens up questions about you know <laughs> what kind of skeletons may tumble out of his closet, which will certainly not make his job easier. Um, but basically, as as someone without without a lot of national profile, and as someone who got elected as you know basically out of sheer exhaustion. Um, I, I don't see how he's going to corral all the cats mm. uh, and produce a, produce another continuing resolution. I, I would be surprised if he's yeah. able to do that. Uh, D, one of our listeners asks, she's wondering uh, why we don't play the clip of Trump not knowing that he was at uh, in Sioux City, uh, not uh, Sioux Falls. He said uh, Sioux Falls. Um, and also his comment, uh, evidently, according to D, how many people are really in Sioux City anyway? Uh, he, he did misspeak there. I guess he was called off stage to be reminded that he was in uh, Sioux City, not Sioux Falls. Which is, Sioux Falls, not in in our state. Uh, and uh, also, this coupled with um, uh, D didn't have this in her email, but uh, Donald Trump has now um, an impersonation that he does of current President Biden uh, that plays off of uh, Biden's age. They're both, you know, aged persons. <laughs> let me let me ask uh, you about local elections in the final couple of, of minutes, because before the next politics day happens, there will be an election, off-year elections. Polls open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. next Tuesday, November 7th. Uh, city officials, school board members, uh, plenty of people on the ballot this election day. Um, if you haven't registered to vote, you you can and register to vote at your polling place by bringing a proof of ID and a proof of residence. Yes, you can vote on November seventh. Uh, Chris, to you, uh, you're watching some local races. I understand what. Yeah, well, certainly watching the ones here in uh, where I am in Blackhawk County. Uh, watching the mayoral race for the city of Cedar Falls. We have uh, the. Two-term mayor Rob Green is not seeking a third term, so there's an open race for for mayor in Cedar Falls between two relatively young uh, businessmen uh, within the community, um, uh, Walt Burtis and uh, Danny Laudick, uh, both running for mayor of Cedar Falls. There's the mayoral race in Waterloo where Mayor Quentin Hart is seeking a fifth term uh, for that position. Uh, there's an open mayoral race in the, the city of Waverly just north of here, so Watching those, but also just kind of watching the the context of local elections, uh, school board elections in you know in 2023. In, in contrast to what we saw in 2021, because that was the year where we really saw kind of heightened politicalization of of local races, or mm-hmm. sort of localization of some of those national issues, where it really it you know it was about uh, parental involvement in uh, education, it was about COVID, COVID related policies, and it became very partisan. And, you know, the, the question I can remember us talking during that time about would we be able to turn that off? Because we were seeing things in 2021 in terms of money coming in, um, 
you know, party labels being attached to nonpartisan races or uh, where you typically, you know, there's not a D and an R on these in these races, but people figuring that out based on their stances on on education policy, on COVID policy. And, you know, as you look around in 2023, it, it may not be as political in in some races. I mean, there's still the t- discussion of local issues, you know, economic development, infrastructure, property taxes and so forth. But we still see, as you know, as the Des Moines Register, Sierra Pizzagazette, have reported over the last week or so about about the amount of money coming in that these that these races are becoming more political. So you wonder if that 2021 was really a breaking point or a turning point for for local races where they start to become more expensive, where they start to become more political, more about partisan battles that we see at the national level or even at the state level, where school board officials or, or city council officials may not even have control over those policies. If you think about, you know, in the state of Iowa, all the changes that have happened in terms of education yep. policy um, since 2020, the 2021 elections, where they just become about the, the school board member's stance on those issues, even if they really can't do anything about the policy. Yeah. And so, you know, you wonder if, if we're able to ever go back to a nonpartisan kind of atmosphere there. Chris, you've teed up tomorrow's program very well. Megan Goldberg of Cornell College will be with us <laughs> to talk about local elections. Thank you for that. Thank you, Chris Larimer of UNI and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. River to River, today produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Tune in again tomorrow.